0: Welcome to the Republican Professor this morning. We have a very special guest with us, Sarah Jackson, the woman be- behind Sarah Jackson coaching on Instagram. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for being
1: here. I'm glad to be here, Lucas.
0: Well, that's very nice to say. Thank you.
1: <laughs> well, I mostly know you online, so it's nice to have a face to face touch point.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. We yeah. have known each other online for a long time. I guess over a decade, probably. Yeah. We were writing colleagues together many, many years ago for a nonprofit. Um, I remember one particular meeting we were in. I think it was a Google Hangout or something. Then people used to do that. Yeah. Um, that I I just remember you you looked to me like you were going through a lot in that google hangout uh the the face that you would put with your writing uh was not the same happy face that i saw in the google hangout and that was i think the first time i became aware of your story um mm. what what you were going through at the time um and i've seen I think a pretty accurate, I know I've only seen glimpses here, but just what you share, um, which I think you're pretty open. Of course, I don't know the whole story, so it could be like, I see like 5% of it, but but from what I've seen, you have a very compelling story to me
1: hmm.
0: of, of struggle and health and challenges, and stuff like that, and wellness, and I do think that you are a very wise person, and that's why I wanted to bring you on, because you have the kind of life experience, and the life story, that it would be very helpful for people, and I'm sure it is helping you, people, um, with your business, and stuff that you started, so anyway, you have this Instagram account that I follow, sarah jackson coaching you've gone from like i I mean i don't know specifics but i just remember seems like it was like a thousand followers or something or hundreds of followers when i was following it and then i sneezed and it was like three thousand and then i blinked again and it was like seven and then I went for a walk. I came back from the walk. It was like 10,000 followers. I think you're, (laughs) I I think you're like double that now or something. Just, just us talking here. So you're um, I'm very happy for you. I'm very happy for that success that you're experiencing. Um, Anyway, I'm going to quit talking. So let's hear from you, Sarah Jackson. I know that you, weren't you like a star athlete in high school? How would you I where was. would you start? Where would you start talking about your story?
1: My story. Yeah, I think I probably would start with my athletic days because that's really where my health challenges began. I was a hurdler, and a, a hundred meter hurdler and, and a four hundred meter hurdler in college and high school. A three hundred meter hurdler. And I I was fast and really enjoyed having a strong, healthy body that served me well and got me, uh, got my college paid for. And I am originally from Washington State. I came down to Southern California to run track. I, I wanted to run track at a university that had some theology training and a good program, um, a good track program. And Found myself really at an elite program with a lot of aspiring Olympians and Olympians. And it was such an intense, rigorous program that my body started breaking down. That was the first piece. You know, now I think in terms of my nervous system and body being resourced to navigate the stressors and experiences of my life. And I look back and I just think with my studies and I was, I, I, I I loved academics and I dove in there. And then my program, which was such intense Olympic level training, though I was never an uh, aspiring Olympian myself, it was too much for my body. And so although I had had this really magical childhood and healthy, uh, a little bubble that I lived in. That's when the bubble began to grow thinner and thinner and eventually pop. So a number of things happened simultaneously as the program was wearing my body down. I was living in an apartment that unbeknownst to me had a whole lot of mold And I also had to get on some medication to help my hormones because of what that program was doing. A lot of, I think we're seeing more conversation about this now. A lot of athletic programs are really designed for the male body, and so there was some medication for my hormones that really wreaked havoc. And I just started to feel not myself, and I got slower, and started getting sick a lot, and that was the beginning of a very long journey of health challenges. I eventually um, in my mid twenties found myself exposed to Epstein-Barr virus, which is a virus that a lot of people get. 95% of the population has has Epstein-Barr in in their system but a very small percentage of the population will have long-term issues with Epstein-Barr. And so after a several year slide into the pit, I found myself in bed for the better part of six years
0: what was that the, is the nutshell <laughs> what, what, what was the time frame of that six years <laughs> what year what yeah. years was up
1: yeah it was a couple weeks before my 26th birthday um and then I did not start to find healing answers until I was 32 or almost and, 32
0: and you're 33 now <laughs> I mean, what, 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 what
1: years was this? Yeah. So now I'm 37. So it's been okay. five years that I have been healing. And, I've, I've, okay. so, and I, I, so I can give you the details mm-hmm. of, of, of that process of finding.
0: Yeah. So um, I'm trying to, I think, so during that, the, the, the very brief little anecdote I shared about the Google hangout, yeah, that was during that time when you were,
1: it was, hmm
0: So you were writing at that time. We were writing colleagues, and you were writing from bed, do you think? Or from bed. Yeah, from really, bed. Wow. Mm-hmm.
1: wow. Most of it. Yeah, there was a period. So the beginning of this the six-year period, I didn't know that I'd been exposed to Epstein Bar. Doctors were flummoxed. It took about six months before they found Epstein-Barr in my system and that infection was really active in my body for years. Um, And it wreaked such havoc in my nervous system and really all my systems, digestion and hormones, endocrine system. And there was a point though a few years in where I did start to see some healing progress and was able to spend a couple of days out of bed. And during those couple of days, uh, there were times where maybe I could go on a little hike or I could hang out with friends. And so that was part of the time. I think there was overlap. We were writing together, uh, when I was really in bed every day. And then as I was starting to see a little bit of encouraging progress, but then there was more mold exposure. There was another virus cytomegalovirus. And so there was a second perfect storm. All of my perfect storms have had in common uh, mold, a virus, and then some sort of trauma, some sort of pretty significant disruptive relational experience. and, And so I had a second one of those and found myself really sicker than than ever. Wow. Um, and yeah, that would have been my 30th right about my 30th birthday.
0: That's um those are those particular years are it's just really sad to me that those years were spent in bed from from those ages um, yeah, that's, that's, that's a really that's... crucial part of anybody's life. I mean, all, any part of anybody's life is crucial. I know, but that's to go from being a, a star athlete. Didn't you win some awards or something when you were in high school? Did you, did you, did you, did you compete at the state mm-hmm. level?
1: Yeah, I won state in both of my events. You won wa- you were first in state. Mm-hmm.
0: What, what state yeah. was that?
1: Washington state.
0: That's a, that's not, like a, that's not like Rhode Island or something. I mean, well, maybe it is. I don't know how, what the population is, but it's, it's a big state. Was it a public school? Yeah, it school?
1: was a competitive. It was public school. Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. That's yeah, a big deal. Yeah, when I came to out of high first, school. You was... won first in state. I did. You yes. were like the top champion. Wow. Mm-hmm. So you were the yeah. fastest person in Washington going over those hurdles
1: mm-hmm.
0: when you were 17. Yeah, or eight 18. A, I guess 18. Wow. Yeah. Okay. To go from that to, cause like, I have to slow way down to get over those hurdles. You know, I'm like, I'm like putting <laughs> both hands on, you know, making sure I don't pull a muscle to go from that to you're now just screeching halt. Yeah. How, how long would it take you to write those articles?
1: A long time. Gosh, and I can't remember specifics, but it was a lot of work. one of the things that happens when you have that kind of chronic illness and, you know, there were, there are parasites that invade and there's just, it becomes so layered uh, is you just have really intense brain fog. And so there's limited mental and emotional capacity, and it's really hard to find words So in other words, you
0: have, you have depression at the same time as you're having the physical issues Mm -hmm. and that's all compounded. And, uh, you sound very knowledgeable about like looking back, you feel, it seems like you have pretty well describable when you were going through it. Obviously, there must have been a tremendous amount of confusion and or what was that? How would you characterize it? Because obviously, looking back, you feel like you have a handle on what was happening. Mm -hmm. But during it, did you feel like you knew what was happening?
1: No, it was desolate. I saw dozens of doctors and there was a lot of medical gaslighting. You know, now as a coach, I've gotten to work with many hundreds of people who've lived very similar journeys. And that is one of the common threads throughout our stories is the medical gaslighting, where you're given a little pill for anxiety or depression. You're told it's, it's just mental. And there are doctors who don't engage in that kind of gaslighting, but there's not um, a real commitment to problem solving. And I wonder if the pandemic will change that now that there are a lot of viral long haulers, that are, I think, um, eliciting more attention. There's more research, but it was a long, dry wilderness of searching for answers. And there just were a constellation of labels that were thrown at me. And, and even if there was, I got a good kind doctor and he, he had suggested some dysautonomia, a real disorder of the nervous system and um, some other things and said, listen, I can't help you. There's literally nothing I can get. There's no recourse, but I think you're going to kick this. That was his role. He said, I've had seen, he was in his seventies. He said, in my life, I've had one person, I have had one patient overcome this. And I think you're going to be the second, but I, I can't tell you how. And so even in kindness, that was the answer that I met again and again and again. Typically, when you have those sorts of invisible chronic health challenges, there are a lot of supplements, IVs, those sorts of things. But there comes a point for many of us where the body becomes so, so sensitive that it starts rejecting all of that. So I had some naturopathic doctors who were willing to do some problem solving and, and I had a, a holistic medical doctor who similarly was willing to do some problem solving. And so there were some different protocols that in the short term brought some relief, but then I would always move back to a baseline of illness. And so it really wasn't until the six year mark there, I've had a lot of doctors say, there's, you've got pretty intense nervous system dysfunction, uh, your vagus nerve isn't working right. Your limbic system is problematic, but again, there were no answers. There was no recourse. And then I, I had a friend who was a therapist who had had Lyme disease and was about fifteen years ahead of me on her journey. Say, Sarah, you need to rehabilitate your amygdala, and. I said, well, yeah, that seems to be what doctors are saying. That <laughs> there's something with the amygdala, as part of the limbic system. So I need to check this out. Limbic system plays a significant role in regulating autonomic nervous system function. And so I just googled how to rehabilitate your amygdala. This was at year, at the end of year six. How and, do you spell? Uh, how do
0: you spell that? The amygdala. amygdala. It's
1: Amy. A M Y. G D A L A.
0: Okay. Sorry to it's interrupt. Like you.
1: Little, that's okay. It's like the little captain of your limbic system. The captain. Um, your limbic. Though. The little captain of your limbic system. Your limbic system <laughs> is sometimes called the emotional brain. It it's what facilitates your experience of emotion, but it's also your threat alert system. Right. So, it's working involuntarily apart from your conscious thought and in every moment it's in taking billions of bits of stimuli and it's sorting them in one of two categories safe or potential threat and if it perceives that there's activate a cascade effect in the body where there are stress hormones that are generated is my internet connection unstable? I just got a sign that it is. Can you still hear me? Oh, I just lost you. In those.
0: We're back. Okay, sorry.
1: Back.
0: So the, the amygdala is the captain of the limbic system and I, you know, you were going from there.
1: Yes. Um, when were- it perceives when it perceives that there's threat in your environment, it initiates a stress response in the body. The body's flooded with stress hormones and those stress hormones are what are going to help move you to safety. It activates the fight or flight response. And what I began to learn is that long-term viral infection, mold exposure, uh, along with, of course, our emotional traumas, our relational traumas, and even the chronic stress of my track program, where in my college experience, where there was a demand that my body was not resourced to meet, those can all impair your limbic systems functioning and perpetuate a chronic trauma loop where the body is, perpetually perceiving threat and therefore perpetually keeping the body in a stress state and if the body is not able to move out of that stress state it's not ever going to heal the body has to be in regulation in order to be in homeostasis homeostasis is where the body can absorb nutrition and cells can repair and the immune system can clear infection and the body can detox. So it helped me understand why everything that I had tried was temporary. I would always return to a baseline of illness because my nervous system's new baseline was one of a survival state instead of a state of regulation. And so I embarked on a journey of rewiring my nervous system, which was a really intensive grueling process. And as I was able to rewire my nervous system, my body came back into homeostasis. My immune system could come online. It could begin to clear the viral infection, detox from the mold, kill off the parasites. And it's been a five-year process. And I've seen incredible progress. I've gotten so much of my life back, but there's still this some room for more healing
0: so it was like year six that you started putting the pieces together it, it sounds like year six it was the someone mentioned the nervous system you probably are already aware of it but you're starting to realize there's something you want to get to this baseline of health instead of sickness mm-hmm and you've just been racked with challenges for so long that you had, it's almost like you had to just start over or something like with your nervous system, the trauma, the track program, the long-term exposure, all that, you know, I can't even imagine going to all those doctors. I, I cannot even imagine, I cannot even imagine the frustration <laughs> It just, I mean, it's it, it had to get to the point where you go to the doctor and you just expect that there's nothing because you've had such dismal re- experience, right? So how it must, I, I'm amazed that you were even going to doctors after a while. Like, just how do you, <laughs> so yeah.
1: When, there comes what, a point where you do want to give
0: up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I would have given up after like Doctor Three or something, but um you you were obviously very persistent and and um I when you, you mentioned fight or flight, so I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um but maybe before we do, maybe we should say what trauma is. Yeah. Because, because I full disclosure, everyone, I am a I guess I would say, am I am I a client of yours? I don't know. Yeah. But You're a am member. I, yeah, I'm I I have I have a membership in her program. And her program is well, why don't you tell us what your program is, your current one.
1: Yeah, I have her, a monthly membership. Mm-hmm. It's a monthly membership called Restore. So, I did a limbic system retraining program. It was a rigorous system that guided me through daily focus rewiring practices. There were a lot of gaps in that system. It it didn't treat me as a whole person. And the nervous system is so relational. We're created in the image of God. I wanted a program that really honored the image of God in me that treated me like more than matter to be rearranged. Mm-hmm. And so I created a membership that has an extensive video library. Do you mind if
0: I show it? Do you mind if I share my screen? Mm. Okay. I'm going to share my screen. Keep going. Keep talking.
1: (laughs) It's a blend of practices and education. And yeah, so there is a forum. And then the video library is where there are different categories to help you. Yeah, here we go. So you'll see if you look at this second row here, where it says sympathetic activation, freeze Mm -hmm. and shut down head to toe, those are all full of resources to help you when you're in the different survival states, which I can talk about. So sympathetic activation is fight or flight. If you notice you're in a fight or flight state, if you were to go to this folder, any of these videos would help you signal safety to your nervous system. Because if your nervous system perceives safety, Mm -hmm. it's gonna start moving out of that survival state. Um, And if you notice you're in a free state or you're in a state of shutdown or collapse, there are different exercises. Some of them are cognitive where you engage your power of imagination and reason. uh, But a lot of them are somatic where you're engaging movement and you're using your nervous system's language of sensation to signal safety to it. That's really our central focus or one of our central focuses when we notice we're in some sort of survival state is we want to signal safety to the nervous system right Um, and because that's when there's Mm. trauma or chronic stress that registers as trauma in the body your brain's neuroception which is its ability to accurately perceive threat Becomes compromised, so it has trouble accurately perceiving threat. It, it perceives threat where there is no threat. A lot of people with chronic health challenges or even just chronic stress and trauma will start to have chemical sensitivities, mm-hmm. um, or food sensitivities. The, the The brain is attaching threat or danger to this innocuous stimuli. Um, and so we really want to help teach the body a healthy neuroception. We want to help it understand, Hey, right now we're safe right now. We don't need to be in a survival state and we can use sensation and movement and breaking up tension patterns to help the body understand that. So trauma is a, mm-hmm. I think, yeah. I think is a, is a helpful starting point when we're wanting to understand this care and attunement for the nervous system, whether you have health challenges or not, maybe you have anxiety, maybe you have a depression or perpetual, even shame, um, is not just a function of the soul, it's a function of the nervous system. Your limbic system is continually assessing what dignity looks like culturally. Yeah, and there's even in the trauma education, there are some videos to help you begin to explore shame and to help train your limbic system in new stories about your inherent value as an image bearer. Uh, so wherever you are on the spectrum, understanding trauma is foundational. Trauma is less about what happened to you, and it's more about how your body or your nervous system experienced what happened to you. Okay. That's,
0: that's huge. Mm -hmm. That's huge. What you just said. So I'm just going to ask you, can you say that one more time?
1: Yeah. Trauma is less about what happened to you and more about how your nervous system experienced what happened to you. So trauma occurs when the nervous system is feeling like it's stuck helpless or lacking control and your your nervous system, your limbic system in particular is not just concerned with your physical and emotional safety. It's also concerned with your reputation, your sense of dignity, your sense of belonging, your communal connections. So if it feels like any of those things are compromised and it doesn't have the resources, to rectify, to protect you, to protect your reputation, to protect your safety. That's when traumatization can happen. And, oh, I should have had my slinky down here. I'm used to podcasts being only auditory and not having the option of the visual.
0: Well, I can pause it if you want to go get it.
1: Okay, let's do that. Okay. (laughs) Okay.
0: And we're back. Got a slinky? (laughs) Got something?
1: I got my little slinky. Okay. I think it will actually help if I start with this ladder. This is the autonomic ladder or the polyvagal ladder. It's based on, oopsies, it's based on polyvagal theory by Stephen Porges, And I just think it's the best map we have to understand how our nervous systems interface with our external experiences and our internal experiences, our thoughts and our emotions. So this is gonna help, I think, flesh out this idea of traumatization so this should be your nervous system's baseline. This is called the ventral vagal presence.
0: I want to just say this is going out on Apple podcasts. And so oh, it those, is. those who cannot hear can only hear. Let me just describe what she's holding up. She's holding up a picture of a ladder and there's three people on the ladder. I think they're supposed to be the same person, but it's three different places. One could be on the ladder. The top of the ladder is called ventral vagal, and the uh, the caption says, "I feel safe, confident, and connected," and the person appears to be happy. It's a stick person, and they're holding their hands up, so I can't see their face. I'm assuming it that means happy. Then in the middle, yeah, in the middle. Well,
1: you know what? I can can I interject? Sure.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Here. Yeah. yeah. So at the top of the ladder, we have this little stick figure with their hands up because they're feeling confident and resourced to navigate the stressors of their day. And that's one of the characteristics of being in ventral vagal presence or regulation. We call it ventral vagal presence because it's the front branch of the vagus nerve. Your vagus nerve is the main component of your parasympathetic nervous system. That's your rest and digest system, but it's the front branch that moves you into the state of ventral vagal presence at the top of the ladder. And, and in this state, you're going to feel more connected to your people. You're going to feel connected to your body, your emotions, and come what may, you're going to feel resourced to navigate it and this should be your body's baseline, the top of the ladder here. Not that you're going to stay here always, but this should ideally be where your nervous system returns when stress has passed, when threat has passed, because this is where homeostasis this is where we're in homeostasis at the top of gotcha. the ladder. Mm-hmm.
0: That's rest and digest. Is that the same yeah, thing?
1: Yeah, rest and digest. Yeah. Gotcha. This, this is where healing can happen. This is where the hormones can regulate and digestion. Your gut can heal and allergies can resolve themselves and the immune system can clear infection. Did I say that already? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's worth saying many times.
1: It's worth saying many times.
0: Sympathetic is in the middle and that's fight or flight. Um, now, my con- let me just add some of my connection here yeah. that I found very helpful for you from you um your uh your coaching on on the nervous system has been particularly helpful there's been some other things too but i think i'll just focus on the nervous system for this episode um just because i don't want to cram too much in here for people but if we can i mean i'll I'll add more but the the whole idea of re- re- realizing i was in fight or flight for many years Mm -hmm. on the college campuses and a lot of people are wondering what is it what in the world does this have to do with my experience like on the college campuses well um i was in the military and um when i went to therapy um as a professor uh, i went to a a PhD psychologist uh, for a while while I was an adjunct professor on the college campuses, he spent quite a bit of time just basically um, getting me to see how traumatic my experience is. And I was almost, I think I'm, I'm not sure if I would say I was in denial about it, but I, I think I was just so used to it yeah, that it was just normal for me.
1: It is was, your day fine?
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think I was in fight or flight, but then I started realizing that as I got older, I was less capable of being in that state for prolonged periods of time. And when I got a glimpse of not being in that state, I preferred not being in the state because I was happier. And so I had to reconnect with some earlier memories of when I wasn't in the state all okay. the time. Yeah. But, um, so people who have had a really hard time the last couple of years or whether it's jobs, the economy, um, relationships, uh, loss, uh, other things, uh, dealing with um unpleasant circumstances and other it might be your living situation it might be the neighborhood you grew up in or the neighborhood you live in could be there there's all sorts of um challenges and your nervous system is you could be going into like fight or flight a lot or 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 we haven't done the shutdown yet or the freeze yet but mm-hmm. but i was in fight or flight for a while and i was i was kind of oscillating so anyway you gave me the kind of language to understand what i was experiencing that was not a, a like a clinical psychologist it wasn't like a a psychotherapist mm-hmm. approach it was like what's happening in your body and i've noticed that your the way you describe it like you describe it almost like talking like 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 you you use the language of tell a story it's like you're the uh, there it's like there's two people in your body the survival brain and so i'm sorry I, i'm a philosophy guy and so like i you know sometimes i notice those kind of things where i'm like i have to ask you do you really believe that there's two there, there's like a survival brain that like has a story and like is there a story that's being told or but the way you describe it is very useful i would say Mm -hmm. um sorry sorry this is coming out jumbled but (laughs) but i i started thinking i started adopting that useful i don't know do would you say it's a useful fiction or would you how would you describe it
1: well I I don't know that I would call it a fiction. I think certainly our map, our map of the nervous system is always going to ha- be shifting as we gain more information about the nervous system and there will be things we need to revise. But I think that... I do when, think- when
0: you say the survival brain the, and you say like there the story thing, like there's a story being kind of yeah. told, like I'm in fight or flight or my dignity is threatened uh, it's, it's like, I I think it's the first time I ever thought about kind of stories traveling through my body. Like I, you know what I mean? Does that make sense to you? Like, like I, I had a hard time with that at first. Like I didn't know how to process that. Like I might be, people have called me too literal, like they say, "I'm too literal, <laughs> and then I ask them what do they mean by literal, and then that kind of like double you know <laughs> you're off to the races I'm at the that person, point. your definitions
1: yeah Our definitions are important,
0: yeah, well, but um how how did you come to see the 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 um the survival brain like that and the and the and the stories traveling through your body Mm -hmm. how did you come to see that at first because it does help does seem to help like i started realizing hmm i the so much of your work is getting people to notice Mm -hmm. what's happening like what the attunement stuff and i noticed that your your techniques do work they actually do work like Um, if I can describe a couple of them really quick, just briefly, you, you have one where you just look around the room,
1: the orienting, the eye orienting,
0: orienting. Yeah. Yeah. And just slowing down and you have some, um, where you're, you're releasing. uh, I mean, the whole deal is where you're releasing stored energy. And I had, significant pain in my feet for years to where i i it was pay- very painful it could have been very painful for me to run and running was one of the funnest things i used to do as a kid i loved running and in the, in the military i loved running but i had to take boxing tape like for the boxing hands like you know those boxing things i had to wrap that around my ankle and my foot i have high arches just to go to work just to go teach my classes for years and it i you know it turned out i think it was trauma stored energy there and it was only um life circumstances where i wasn't in the classroom i wasn't on the stressful college campuses which for me were politically very stressful places uh I I mean I experienced it as trauma because I of the story I told about in my mind about which I think is a true story, but, but about where the direction of the country was headed and culture and my students aren't learning and uh, there's a lot of grade inflation and people don't take it seriously. There's all sorts of social media stuff that gets in the way that people have lower attention spans, and I I I just took that to be more stressful actually than what i did in the military (laughs) Mm -hmm. and i did you know some pretty stressful things in the military i had a harder time on college campuses and it got stored in my feet and then like when my schedule got uh, lighter I actually had irritable bowel syndrome for the first time in my life. I didn't even know what it was. Like mm-hmm. it just hit me all of a sudden, like as an older man, like, you know, older, younger man. And it threw me off so bad. Like I did, I thought I was dying. Like I had cancer or something mm-hmm. turned out it was just irritable bowel syndrome and less, lots of people had it. And then I realized this is actually now affecting my digestive system. I don't know how it didn't affect my digestive system before, but now all of a sudden, so I just noticed these weird things happening. And so I bring that brief description of my experience to your, obviously we were friends and connected on online, not really in person as much, but online, I was following you and your story when I started seeing you put the pieces together and then you were putting together like an entrepreneurial thing. I was very interested in that. I was really excited that you were, uh, doing something with all of this knowledge and wisdom and experience that you had. And then when I saw your product and how good it was, like, I was like, this is great. This is what I needed. Like I I wasn't in a place to benefit from it prior to that, but but I was like, yeah, this is a key for me right now. Like I need to figure out this nervous system thing Mm -hmm. and be really careful about slipping into fight or flight and what, how I can get out of that. And that's tied to stored energy and stored trauma. I think a lot of people are going to benefit from this and they probably already are.
1: Well, thank you for sharing that. It is one of the, happiest plot twists. Cause I didn't think I was going to heal. I mean, there came a point where I just thought this is my life and I don't know that I have a lifetime of this in me. And so to get to hear from people who are experiencing the benefit, they're feeling shifts in there. Are you feeling a shift in your feet then it sounds like.
0: Yeah. I don't wear the, I don't wear the, the uh, boxing stuff in there. And I haven't for a while that started shifting a while ago, but it had to do with, um, crazy schedules and, um, the extreme unpredictability of it. Um, and just, you know, I couldn't keep up with it. Basically I tried, but
1: yeah, it's amazing. The kinds of, pain and infection and hormonal issues and autoimmunity that can show up from this chronic stress and trauma. And so to, I, to answer your question though about the survival brain and the thinking brain interfacing, part of the body's intelligence is it has to communicate with us. If, if, the, if the body perceives that there's a threat and you need to run, It is going to, from the bottom up, we call it. So your body is going to communicate upward toward your brain. It's going to communicate. We have got to run now or else. We've got to do something about this now or else. It might not look like we've got to run now. It might look like, you know, we've got to lose the weight now or else. This is something that I hear often or, You know, we've got to have the conversation with the spouse now or else if if it feels dysregulating to have the space that fight or flight impels somebody toward action. And that's just the body's way of communicating. It communicates with sensation, but it's going to generate thoughts happening in the body. It's going to impact what the thinking brain perceives. And then that makes
0: sense. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: The thinking brain, there's reciprocity in turn can influence the firing of the limbic system. We can use our reason and our imagination to signal safety to the limbic system. It's really whatever we imagine, the brain experiences as if it's real, right? That's why you can think about some catastrophe that hasn't happened yet and go into fight or flight. Even though the catastrophe isn't real, the body is generating mobilizing energy so you can run or fight to address it. So we can use our imagination to really generate a sense of safety and calm that feels real and true to the body in the same way that we can use sensation. So there is this reciprocal reciprocal relationship between the body and the brain, bottom up processing and then top down processing is when the brain is able to impact what's happening in the body. Can,
0: can can we go back to that ladder again? Yes. I, I think trauma. we, yeah, let's, we were in the middle of describing <laughs> that. Yeah. So I'll describe um, now that I know okay. this,
1: this is going out um, without the visual in some places. So if you're in a, in a state of ventral vagal presence at the top of the ladder or regulation and your brain perceives that there's some sort of threat to your safety, your sense of dignity, your reputation, your belonging, your connection, It's going to move you down the ladder. So you can just imagine you're moving down toward the middle of the ladder to sympathetic activation or fight or flight. It's your sympathetic system, your nervous system uh, that moves you into this state. And it's a mobilizing state, which means in this state, your body is going to generate a whole lot of survival energy and that survival energy is going to enable you to run or fight. So if somebody has a nervous system calibrated defaults to fight, they're going to want to be more argumentative. Whereas if somebody has a nervous system that defaults to flight, they're going to be more avoidant. And so in this state, you're going to feel anxious, vulnerable, maybe even in danger. You're going to feel bigger emotions like anger, if the story that feels true in the top of the ladder is I've got this, I've got what it takes. The story that feels true in fight or flight, as I mentioned earlier is I need to do something about this now or else. And
0: I like how you said the story that feels true.
1: Yeah. Right. Right. So much of this healing of the nervous system of repatterning it is bringing awareness to when those stories show up and what they actually mean that they're not necessarily indicators of your your reality in terms of your lived experience actually i want to say that differently they're not indicators of what's happening outside of you necessarily they're an indicator of what your nervous system perceives is happening that's
0: that's huge right there that's Mm huge 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 (laughs) huge
1: Huge, 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 because we know that that perception that we call neuroception becomes compromised when there's chronic stress, when there's unresolved trauma. So we're getting closer to our trauma definition. <laughs> we're laying the groundwork here.
0: We're just taking our time, aren't we? But yeah. It's such a wonderful journey, though. I mean, we're looking, we're checking out all the flowers in this field.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And this, I think is really foundational to being able to work with your nervous system is understanding the different states and how they relate to traumatization. So in a fight or flight state, your heart rate's getting higher, your blood's pumping to your extremities that you can run, you can fight, but things can get too amped up and your brilliant brain goes, whoa, whoa." (laughs) if things get and this is happening involuntarily, apart from your conscious thought, your brain goes, if things get any more intense, if the heart rate gets any higher, we're gonna combust. And so it pulls an emergency break. And you remember it's the front branch of your vagus nerve that moves you into regulation at the top of the ladder, but it's actually the back branch of your vagus nerve, according to polyvagal theory, that um, pulls this emergency brake, And that's gonna send you to the bottom of the ladder which we see here in red, it says dorsal vagal shutdown, dorsal meaning back branch of the vagus nerve moves you into shutdown. And in shutdown, your nervous system is literally starting to shut down. So the blood that was in your extremities is no longer, it's, Moving into your extremities, you're losing blood flow to the brain. Um, and so we've got our little running man at the middle of the ladder at fight or flight, at the bottom of the ladder and dorsal vagal shutdown. We've got a man who's moving into the fetal position. That is going to be the position that feels safest for the body in a state of dorsal vagal shutdown. And the story that's going to feel truest in dorsal vagal shutdown is I can't, I don't have what it takes. And the experience will be one of emotional numbness, disconnect from our bodies, from our sensations. There can be some some disassociating that happens. There can be overwhelm. There's shame that we feel at the bottom of the ladder sometimes.
0: Yeah, that's huge. Uh Well, especially if you're a strong man and you feel like you should be able to handle this, and then you're not, and it's involuntary. There could be a lot of shame. Well, I don't know how it is for women, it's probably the same.
1: I think also if you notice if somebody does or says something that triggers shame in you, you'll probably you're probably going to notice um, the slumping the wanting to disappear, the wanting to get smaller. And that's characteristic of that dorsal vagal shutdown. And then our final state is a blended state. It's not pictured on the ladder, but if you can just imagine, We've got our yellow fight or flight and our red dorsal vagal. If you can imagine an orange box that says freeze, freeze is equal parts sympathetic activation or fight or flight with dorsal vagal shut down. So the body wants to move, but it can't because dorsal vagal shut down at the bottom of the ladder here with the fetal position is a state of immobilization. And similarly, freeze is a state of immobil- immobilization.
0: Yeah, free, freeze sucks. I hate freeze. I've been in it.
1: Well, no, it. Oh, I'm sorry. I cut you off.
0: No, it's, I mean, actually all these states below the top kind of suck. And I can see that <laughs> now. I can see that. Now. But, but like freeze really is like the worst, I think. And then I think the second worst is the dorsal vagal where you don't have any energy and you're kind of like, I've been there. And then the fight or flight. Here's the thing about the fight or flight, I will say a lot of people in politics are in fight or flight and a lot of political stuff like ads. um, People call it being an activist. Just think of the term activist. It's interesting. It's, I think this is very unhealthy, like the way we're doing it. And I am able to see that a little bit more clearly now from my experience of health is I think we're making people unhealthy. And I think k- kids see this and they, they're turned off from being involved with just trying to understand the world um, because it's too exhausting. Um, but yeah, there's, I think a lot of uh, trying to get people to do something involves the motivation of trying to get them in fight or flight. And that's, I guess it's appropriate if there is a war, like, you know, if World War II or something, Mm -hmm. like, you know, probably there was a little bit too, uh, well, World War II historians would know exactly where this is, but probably a lot of that stuff could have been avoided if there was a little bit more attunement to the reality but people were comfortable, I guess. I don't know. I'm not sure of the story exactly. But, but then when you treat everything like it's a war
1: right. and
0: it's constant fight or flight, then what if it's not? Like, what if you're missing some opportunities for connection and 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 whole wholeness? And then if you're in that state. Of that nervous system state, you miss those opportunities, and uh, missed opportunities are very sad. It's very sad. I think with higher education, the best learning is done in the top of the ladder, sin, rest, and digest. I think that that's true, but think of how much learning is done from a panic position like you think of law school and attorney study, you know, you think of like preparing for the big case, or you think of the big exam or the big midterm or the big presentation and uh, staying up all night, people stay up all night. The only way you can do that is if you're doing fight or flight and you can all, you can, can't do that for very long. Like you can't, right. the older you get, like I, I remember I used to pull all nighters. I hated them but I could do it. And I was kind of proud. I could do it. And see, that's what I'm getting at is I kind of liked fight or flight.
1: Yeah. It's addicting.
0: Well,
1: it feels good to get that jolt of adrenaline. And you had said earlier that you, as you're restoring this baseline of ventral vagal presence or regulation to your nervous system, you're able to be happy. But I think the emphasis on productivity especially, you know, post-industrial revolution there, this is the the measuring rod that we use to assess success in a person's life is what have they achieved and produced. And it's hard to produce uh, in our constant grind. Uh, You start to get tired. And so then your body needs to kick it up a notch. And the only way that we can achieve these ideals of production, whatever the realm is, politics, education is for the nervous system to amp up into that state of fight or flight. Um, Cause your sympathetic nervous system is designed to activate you, to get you up out of bed and get you ready for, for school. Um, but you don't need to be in a fight or flight state to do that. We end up moving into a fight or flight state and we become so depleted that we don't have what it takes to keep showing up and putting in the work. And so then the body compensates with these extra jolts of adrenaline, too much sympathetic energy that moves the body into fight or flight.
0: Yeah, it became apparent to me that, that at the, the point of my schooling in which I I think I fully figured this out was, was when I was writing the dissertation because mm-hmm. I knew I could not write it in fight or flight. I did quite a bit up until then, like even my doctoral exams. Um, I was teaching six classes at three schools mm-hmm. in Los Angeles and taking two comprehensive exams, six hours each uh, for my PhD. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I did but then after that I was like okay that's it uh this huge project of writing I couldn't do I could not do it because I couldn't think like it's like my brain was it's not that your brain was fried it's not an exhaustion in that sense it's that like it was brain fog it was like I couldn't it was like I was just got back from a war or something you know but um there's something. There's so many things that you've mentioned that I I always like. Oh, I want to. Trying to figure out what I want to say. You said that the the nervous system is designed. Um, do you mean that it really was designed, or or do, how do you mean that? I'm try, I'm getting to your how you see the world. Your worldview. Yeah.
1: Yes, I do believe it really was designed by god to be relational that part of being in the image of god is that he's wired power into us to literally rearrange the matter in our brains to repattern the nervous system but that we want to do this in a way that is relational compassionate kind treating the body not as an object to serve us but really as this intelligent gift that is wired to work collaboratively <laughs> with us. And I have, you know, I have clients from all different walks of life. Some are, a lot are followers of Jesus as I am. Uh, some are atheists or agnostic, Buddhists. It really is quite a wide spectrum. And, and I, I'm always, I always want people to feel safe in our sessions. And so I'm intentional to tailor the time and in ways that feel safe for them. But I think the one thing that I can't get away from is (laughs) whatever your worldview, this work doesn't work unless you know that you matter and your body matters.
0: Mm, Wow. That's huge.
1: It's huge. It's huge. And it's just, to me, another compelling signpost to this picture of dignity we have in the Genesis account that we are created in the image of God. And that matters in every (laughs) area of life.
0: So there's no, it's hard to separate that completely from this work. So you, you you blend it in. I notice you don't shy away from saying that. And I, I, I kind of wonder from an entrepreneurial perspective, I'm interested like, you know, you don't you're 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 obviously very good at making people feel safe who might not quite understand or maybe disagree with that part. Um so that's quite an emotion that on a on a professional level, that's quite an accomplishment there um because but you're also incredibly authentic and i i think it's not a fake authenticity it's real authenticity when i when i say authentic i really mean authentic you know me i like the (laughs) definitions of terms (laughs) i am like using that word for a reason um so it's in that sense, it's, it's not a gimmick. It's not like, uh, oh, I'm authentic, you know, uh, uh, take my program or something like that. It, it's, it comes out very naturally where you're like, this seems to be true. And you, you have like the way you just said it, you said, this doesn't work unless, how'd you say it? You believe that you matter. matter. And And your
1: body matters. Mm -hmm.
0: You have to believe that.
1: Yeah. And I think it's this, I mean, it's much like, I mean, it's a spiritual formation process. I think anytime we come to repattern the nervous system, it is an invitation to a deeper formational process. And one of the principles of spiritual formation is you lead with your body long before you've internalized the truth about who you are. Who God intended you to be, the value that He's placed in you. You practice that story long before you believe it, and one, one belief. See, as a philosopher, you'll you'll of course be thinking there are different. There are different parts of us that know and believe. And so when I talk about belief, certainly there's like this intellectual understanding of, yeah, I matter, but an embodied visceral emotional understanding, that's the formational piece that is foundational to this healing process. And so that intellectual imaginative picture of, yeah, I'm creating the image of God, guides us as then we begin to practice and live that out in ways that the heart and body can begin to understand.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Practice, you're saying practice comes before belief sometimes?
1: Well, it comes before that emotional embodied
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. well a lot of people say they believe god exi- god loves them for example god god loves me let's say but then when you if you ask them do you really do you feel that they might not have the same response they might yeah. say it doesn't feel like it mm-hmm. so i'm not sure i think what you mean is it's a philosophical question i guess what whether you can believe it without feeling it
1: well maybe you can you might give it like conscious theology versus a subconscious theology yeah
0: that's right that's that's a good way to put it i like that subconscious theology and the subconscious matters a lot like Mm -hmm. for your health and you don't seem to like do do you view your work as hacking that like kind of like a computer hacker or do you view it like uh sounds kind of uh nerdy to say it that way? Like you're some kind of computer geek and you're like, okay, this, this is how you hack this nervous system or the limbic system to get it to do what you want it to do. Well, you don't I, come off that way. I don't think, but
1: I try to steer clear from language like that. Because one of the characteristics of being in this state of fight or flight in the middle of the ladder is, is a fix it mentality. Like I've got to fix what I'm feeling. I've got to fix my nervous system. I've got to fix myself. I've got to fix this issue. It's very utilitarian and it's objectifying. And so I, the body does not like to be treated like an object. (laughs) Um, So I like to use language and imagery that is more relational. So it probably, I mean, there are so many different ways of illustrating it, but it would be more akin to a wise, compassionate parent coming alongside a small child and your limbic system really is like a two or three-year-old coming alongside that small child and, and guiding them into a new way, a new way of being a new way of tuning to the nervous system, caring for the nervous system.
0: That Uh, might sound a little odd to talk about your body that way, but it does seem to work. Like what you the what your approach seems to work. Like this compassionate model. It might sound a little odd that you're compassionate with yourself. Some people might have a have a a little bit of a resistance to that. Like it just seems odd. But if if um if what you're saying is true, that you're we're created and designed by God, we're loved by God, our bodies matter, we matter it It makes sense to approach it that way. How long did it take you for you to figure that out? I mean, not, you know, like it was one day you figured it out.
1: (laughs) Well, I think we might, we might think of layers of healing, but I I even am a little resistant to that imagery of layers because it's not, it's not like we have these compartments of ourselves. We're not an egg carton and like mind's not separate from body and body's not separate from soul in that way. It's, 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 you know, through the cliche of the tapestry, but I'll just use the term layer for now. There's the there's the soul healing where you come to understand that this matters because I matter. Um, there's there's the psychological healing, um, where the emotional wounds that have developed over time you're processing you're tending to and then there's this more superficial layer of rewiring and i don't mean superficial in any sort of negative way but where you're rewiring the nervous system and i i also want to back up and say as i connect this to my story and my learning process when we're wanting to heal trauma actually should i just really briefly finish the trauma definition trauma is when that survival energy, that survival energy that mobilizes you gets locked in your system. It accumulates in the body over time. So that's where trauma can arise from chronic stressful working conditions. It can arise from a little boy who cuts his knee and needs stitches and his brain's not feeling resource. His limbic system's not feeling resourced to help him navigate that situation. So there's this accumulated survival energy in the body over a lifetime. And so when we heal trauma, we're wanting to help the body release that energy because as long as that energy is stuck in our system and it can get stuck in the system for decades, as long as that accumulated survival energy is stuck in the system, that's when we get stuck lower on the ladder. That's when the baseline becomes freeze, functional freeze or fight or flight, or even, you know, dorsal vagal shutdown can be the baseline. And so as you're able to release the stored energy, you're able to move up, the latter, and the only way your body's gonna release is if it really understands, I am safe, I am loved. So whenever we're doing this trauma work, we wanna think about these relational containers. There's a a wonderful resource, Peter Levine, who compares this to a cast. A cast on a broken arm doesn't actually heal the arm, but it holds the arm in place so the arm can do arms do, which is heal. And so we have these relationships with each other, with our own bodies, with God, that are stabilizing, that are nourishing, that bring healing to the soul and allow the body to do what the body is wired to do, which is move toward healing.
0: That makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, so you might even think of concentric circles. Mm, and I don't know what order you're, certainly the outer circle is your container of your relationship with God. And then you have your relationship with yourself and your relationship with other people, your relationship to your own body is of course a big part of your relationship to yourself. When there's chronic stress, chronic trauma or unresolved trauma, it's very natural to develop an antagonistic relationship to the body. Not that we're consciously thinking antagonistic thoughts, though certainly we, we may do that, but we're just Slave driver, right? And go, 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 go. And so my six years in bed, those were the years where I really learned to practice lament, which Mm. I think should be one of the central, and I don't mean should in a pressury way, that can feel activating to the nervous system. Those should. (laughs) I think there is a beautiful, helpful formational invitation to lament. Lament is where we develop that container with of intimacy with God. And and so I had to learn as I I was a star athlete and and I had excelled in college, even with my health stuff, um, on my team, and I had excelled academically and and I garnered a lot of accolades and respect and rapport with people. And that really was stripped away um when I was in bed. And all I had to offer was I I could breathe and I could blink. And sometimes I could stand up long enough to scramble eggs. And there was so much shame I had to face. I
0: cannot imagine.
1: In that place, there was so much shame. And I had to really learn what I would have told you, because I would have told you, of course, you're beloved when all you can do is lie there and breathe and blink. Of course, you're still imbued with this eternal value and significance. But that was my conscious theology, and the moment I had, it was like the fig leaves. If we go back to the Edenic imagery, stripped away the fig leaves of achievement and performance, and even service in the kingdom of heaven, um, there was so much shame. And so I had to experience. It's interesting to me the body. I think in the heart, the emotional core, learn very similarly. They learn through experience. They need to be shown more than they need to be told, and. So I had to experience the love of God that delighted in me, in my weakness. How,
0: how did you experience that?
1: Well, lament was the process of opening myself up. Mm-hmm. So, okay, we can't ever ex-
0: lament like lamentations, right? Like
1: yeah, like we see in the Psalm. Can you
0: describe what lament is? Mm-hmm.
1: So we'd see this throughout the whole of scripture, lament, Lament, scripture really prioritizes this picture of grieving with God in prayer. Lament is a prayer of pain that really has, it has a number of movements. We might think about this in terms of breaths. I had a colleague who talked about the two breaths of grief, Fred Sanders at Biola, um, So we have this first breath, which is anguish, which is the articulation of pain. This is where you expose your raw wounds to the holy healer. This is where you air your rage and your spiritual doubt and disorientation in the throne room of God, which can Sounds feel very, very vulnerable. Yeah. It can feel very off limits. And especially culturally, there's such an emphasis on triumphalism and moving from spiritual victory to spiritual victory. And And will we please God when we air that sort of anguish, anger toward him, questions about him? But that complaint is is the way that we expose our wounds to the healer. If we're not exposing our wounds to the healer, our emotional and spiritual wounds, they just fester in the darkness. And so that was the first piece for me was, everything that's going on the shame the the di- t- true spiritual disorientation who are you god and what do i mean when you're when i say you're good and um i had to air all of that and as i was just intentional to engage in this honest prayer i i can't describe it except to say that he just met me with experiences of his love i would wake up in the morning, so I get choked up even just thinking about it. And I had this feeling that I had never had before and I haven't had it since I've been healing. Like the spirit of God was hovering over me. I would wake up and I would think about creation and that picture of the spirit of God hovering over the waters. And, and I would have this sense that he was singing. Gosh, it does, it's just, it was such a special time. He was singing over me, which of course we see that scripture, that picture. That in Lamentations,
0: that picture of him singing over us. You just sounded British.
1: British is that in Lamentations?
0: <laughs> I was I was about to say as you started crying, I was about to say track your releases, celebrate track my releases. releases? <laughs> that's an in, inside thing. Um, she'll say on in the the product that she has uh, her her website, her subscription uh, community that she'll say track your releases uh so you're not you're paying attention to like when you sigh there's all these releases that happen tears Uh movement in the belly uh even gas if you can believe that that's funny (laughs) it's kind of funny and and there's no shame and when you say it and you just in fact you're saying you should pay attention to those releases because you're releasing stored trauma yeah and so when people become awkward when people have like tears Mm -hmm. It's a different way of looking at tears. When people have tears, you can just be present and notice, and you can notice in yourself. And I, I, you're very kind to yourself. I've noticed.
1: Well, that's what those early years in bed of really experiencing the love of God, meeting me in my emotional and spiritual nakedness did for me was I started to internalize and I'm sure I'll spend my whole life internalizing this story i am created in his image i am beloved by him and
0: you, you know that's a huge thing you just said you've said so many huge things but that's another huge thing i'm tracking your huge things
1: <laughs> huge um, thing.
0: the huge thing you just said was you haven't arrived no um you look as if you have it all together uh, for those who are listening She's got this immaculate um, house or whatever behind her. It, you look uh, like you just have it all together physically and your hairs, you know, everything's perfect. And and what you're saying is you're saying this is an entire uh, my a journey of your entire life. Yeah. So in other words, you haven't arrived. You, it's an ongoing journey.
1: Mm -hmm. ongoing
0: thing so and that comes out like in how you approach it like I think online I'm always amazed when I'm watching your videos I I can't do very many at one time I can usually do just one Mm -hmm. and then I just focus on that for the for the day sometimes I can't get to it for another couple days but I've just noticed how comfortable you are with what you're doing in these these videos like how did you get to the point I, I don't even know if I can ask this question or whatever but like <laughs> how did you get to the point where are you just naturally good at that but because some of this stuff seems so vulnerable to show other people your process like how what works some of these techniques because i mean it's got to be like you're there just by yourself in the you know talking to the camera does it ever seem it doesn't seem like you're judging yourself at all like you're just and that's what's what that's why makes it work because then i'm not judging myself if you're not conscientious then i'm not and you know because some of the stuff you're doing is involves physical movement and tracking like tracking your releases for example tracking like if you sigh or if you have tears it's vulnerable Mm -hmm. you know did you have to work to get to a place like that or did you did it just happen
1: (laughs) no i was very blessed that i had a, a, a psychologist i could start meeting with over the phone when i was in bed and I think it was our first session, he very quickly focused on how critical I was of myself. And he invited me to start getting curious about my thoughts, my feelings, um, that was the starting point. It was later that I started getting curious about physical sensations that were uncomfortable, we call these symptoms. And so it has been a long process. It's been 12 years of practice, almost 12 years now of practicing curiosity about what's happening happening inside of me. It's like I'm sitting in the grandstands and I'm watching my thoughts and my feelings and my physical sensations tumble about. And sometimes I even think it's like I'm a social scientist and I'm gathering information because that sort of removes the emotional charge of judgmentalism that We're all wired to judge the ways that we feel and, and, and even our thought patterns. It's so hard. It's so hard to shift thought patterns when we're just coming at them from a place of judgmentalism, because that judgmentalism heightens the fight or flight response, which rearranges the blood in your brain. It's just, there's not true formation that happens when we're not getting curious so it's just been a lot of years of practicing that curiosity within this container of I am beloved and created the an image of God and I think there was a real turning point for me and I see this in my clients, because traumatization is the experience of being helpless lacking control being stuck. That's when traumatization occurs when, when someone is traumatized and there's that survival energy locked into the system where it's accumulating over time, it's normal to perpetually feel stuck and helpless and like we're lacking control in these different ways. And maybe to not even be aware of it, but to just be a perfectionist and the perfectionism is the coping mechanism to compensate for that felt vulnerability. I'm lacking control right now. And so one of the things that's brought enormous freedom for me is to notice the power I do have that God's wired into me that I can signal safety to my nervous system. And when it perceives safety, it is gonna release that energy. And I can track what that feels like when I'm doing this work and I spontaneously sigh or my tummy gurgles or I burp. Now I know, oh, I'm moving into rest and digest, even the passing of the gas because the nervous system governs all of our systems, we're gonna see shifts in all of our systems as we're working with the nervous system. And so I can celebrate that. And it feels like, like if you've been backed into a corner and now a door is opened. And and so I think that joy (laughs) and freedom alongside the curiosity uh, have been a long time coming.
0: Well, there's a command in scripture, as you well know, to love your neighbor
1: mm-hmm. as With yourself. yourself. Mm-hmm. And
0: a lot of people, well, shoot, there's so much on in scripture you could just, I mean, we could talk about the Sabbath for hours, right? I mean, that's that's an amazing commandment, the Sabbath. I it still blows my mind the Sabbath, but mm-hmm. what that what the implications of that is. But love your neighbor as yourself. Uh presumably there's a high calling on love of our neighbor and that gets a lot of attention, I guess, but the, the love of yourself doesn't really seem to get as much attention, at least in my experience, how to do that well. And what that looks like if you do that well, the self-care, I think that's a common word you hear self-care. Yeah. Um, But it seems like it's got to be rooted in that, don't don't you think? The concern that God has that you have concern for yourself.
1: Yeah, well, you're creating the image of God too, not just your neighbor.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the characteristics of being in a stress state is very black and white, all or nothing thinking, either or thinking. And I think it feels there's something about this prospect of turning toward yourself in love that feels threatening to Christians it feels I think Christians in particular but maybe I'm wrong maybe it's just humans in general I mean I do see it across religions across faith communities um, but it, I think it feels like, oh man, if I turn toward myself in love honoring myself as an image bearer, am I going to end up a selfish person? And, and I don't want to be a selfish person and that's not pleasing to God. It's, this very, it, it's very all or nothing. Um, so,
0: Right, right.
1: That, that's part of healing is noticing when you're operating from those very black and white either or paradigms. Not yeah. to say that there aren't moral absolutes, not to say that, right? But, but yeah, bringing awareness to when that is a consequence of being in a stress state, a feeling threatened. Yeah,
0: there you go. Yeah. You have a partner in crime that's, that oftentimes brings joy to me. I mean, I'm, it, I've, I have laughed unexpectedly because you have this little dog. And the little dog is a white dog. I'm going to describe the dog. It looks like a maybe a a larger Maltese. I don't know what kind of dog it is. Maltese. Oh, is it okay? Uh, she, I should say, she is named Lily, right? Yes. And the funny thing is, is that what she'll you'll be doing some kind of um st- stored uh, stored energy release kind of uh, technique. That you're using it might involve um putting your body in a certain way and lily will just be looking at you (laughs) um she it's not like she does the whole time but she she'll she'll just look at you and you might not even notice she's looking at you which is kind of funny but she'll just be looking at you or sometimes she comes and tries to like get involved like you know (laughs) she's like wondering what you're are you okay and she comes and checks on you and you're and you have to reassure her and it's hilarious it's it's uh it's got to be great having a dog i'm jealous of you in a good way because i don't have one i i had one i had them as a kid and i haven't had a chance to have one as an adult and i that's been kind of a sad thing for me but um it's got to be great to have a dog
1: it is was that a
0: huge part of your your journey of health
1: yeah, you know, about two years into my process, I started to see massive strides a year into daily focus re- rewiring practices. Really, I'm spending, you know, in that first year hours every day, just focusing on rewiring. And, and then the second year was able to focus more on processing grief. It's very hard to process your emotion in real time when you are in a, stuck in a survival state. So processing grief, helping my body unload that burden of grief. And then year three, I I was, um, I've had the trauma in my life has really been unrelenting. I sort of found myself in a, mired in another kind of trauma as I started to heal. And it was in some ways, you know, debilitating as my body was feeling overwhelmed. We don't have the resources to navigate this. And Lily was a special, special grace, um, to me in that time. And, you know, having a pet is wonderful when you're learning to work with your body, a pet is so present and grounded and, you know, you're getting down on the floor with them and they're helping you come into your body as you're feeling the softness of their fur and they're licking you. And so, and they
0: never judge you. They never, you're you're always totally you're totally accepted in their eyes. I mean, if you treat them well, yeah. which obviously you do.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the best.
0: Are you a thinker or a feeler on the Myers-Briggs? Do you know?
1: That's interesting. I'm an INFJ. INFJ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I tested as an INTJ in college, but you know, I think in college, I think I'm so sensitive. My feelings are so big. I survived before I got sick by disconnecting. And, and I, I like intellectual acrobatics. I I like it. You do. I do.
0: So when um, you present your material, it's always very careful. You always, you cite your sources verbally. You're like, well, this guy said this. And, and even in this interview, you'll, you kind of look up, you'll look up you'll look up and yes. you're like
1: thinking <laughs> yep. upper right is where I go.
0: You're very careful. You're very careful in how you present stuff. I've noticed. So I had to ask, I, that's the reason I had to ask because I was like, is she a J or, or is she, I know you're a J, but are you a, an F? I am an F. She, okay.
1: But you know,
0: Are you an Enneagram? Are you at one? Of, or do you follow that?
1: I follow it. The Enneagram is not as intuitive to me as the Myers-Briggs, but okay yeah I mean I don't
0: know what I'm talking about I'm just using (laughs) say Enneagram so someone's going to find that interesting
1: you know your Enneagram I'm six you're a six and see I don't really know enough about them I functioned as a three until I got sick and then saw that I also have a lot of four in me okay Um, so I think I would probably be classified as a four wing three for my understanding is the four is that, you know, sensitive, big feeling, creative. And the three is the achiever. Um, And they have very different ways of relating to emotion. So it's much easier to be a three um, when you've got the big feelings.
0: (laughs) I might have interrupted you when you were talking about the Myers-Briggs. You tested as INFJ. I'm sorry.
1: I'm I'm an INFJ. I, I tested as an INTJ in college, but I think that's just because I was so I, I was surviving by disconnecting from that sensitive big feeling. Although so I think, you, oh, go ahead.
0: Did you just call me a goathead?
1: <laughs> I think that, and I don't understand the particulars of the Myers Briggs. It, it feels the Myers Briggs just feels more intuitive. Like I can meet someone and sort of sense what they might be. Um, but I think the F is, it's also about decision-making, isn't it? Are you more values-driven? I think Fs are more values-driven. I don't know. When you, <laughs> Somebody look
0: back at, when you look back at your life and you look at where you're at now professionally, how different is it from how you thought you would be, where you thought you would be, like, say, when you were in college?
1: Yeah, it's very, very different. I was working on a PhD and was teaching... I was at like you, I was adjuncting at the university and I thought I was just gonna teach full-time in the university forever and ever. And I loved teaching at the university level. So this was- You're a
0: very, you're a very good teacher.
1: Thank you. Thank you for that, Lucas, that's so kind. Um, so yeah, this was not even, at no point have I sat down and mapped this. Entrepreneurial <laughs> journey. It's just I, the very beginning. Um,
0: Did you see yourself as an entrepreneur ever? Because it, it seems to come naturally to you.
1: Yeah, I think it is natural. As a kid, I loved to start little businesses. You know, I there I really wanted American Girl doll, which was this very expensive doll. I was like $110 when I was a kid. And so, you know, I would create these business opportunities so that I could earn money for that doll. And and I did love it. It was natural, but it's interesting the boxes we place ourselves in. Um, I think at some point I just put myself in a box and the there was no thought that I might be an entrepreneur, but I like it. It's it's invigorating. Mm-hmm. I like and I, I like being my own boss.
0: You like being your own boss. I do. Do you you have control over your own schedule to some extent? Yeah. You mm-hmm. like that?
1: I do like it. I don't love I don't love not being able to see colleagues. You know, over lunch. Yeah. Um, it's kind of lonely in that way being an entrepreneur.
0: Well, if you're kind to yourself, I can see why you'd like being your own boss. <laughs> <laughs> because your boss is great your boss is just a great person to me um Um, that's cool i i i think it's if you can if you can understand how to create your own business it's it takes a lot of for me from my perspective it takes a lot of guts to to start something new that doesn't exist that you create it takes a lot of belief in yourself yeah Uh, do you experience that way or
1: I don't know if I have a lot of belief in myself. I've tried to assess how much of this is belief versus just that crazy part of me that would sprint full speed at hurdles, you know,
0: Ah, um, the sprinter,
1: there's gotta be a, there's gotta be a piece of belief, but maybe there's also just a piece that's willing to take risks. I don't know. It does feel vulnerable. Every time I launch something and it's really only been a little over a year that I've been investing in this business and growing up every time I launch something, I do feel sort of overcome <laughs> by the vulnerability of it.
0: Yeah. Do you still sprint? Do you ever get it, get it inkling to just go sprint?
1: I, I don't get an inkling to sprint. I think that's one of the ways that I could still heal. My body still remembers sprinting and just feels like curling up and taking a nap. It just been there, done that. Yeah, I run though. I really enjoyed returning to running and, and I think maybe that'll be the next phase of healing for me is just letting my body get to a point where that anaerobic activity doesn't sound so dreadful (laughs) uh
0: i have in my notes here you spend a lot of time at the beach it seems like that's uh, on purpose you do a lot of videos of the beach uh seems like it's a sunset um unless you're going to the east coast and that's the sunrise uh but it seems like uh you're in california i'm in california um what has the beach done for you
1: Oh, no one's ever asked me that before. Well, it helps me come into my body. Um, it helps me attune to my body. I think the sensory experience of the beach, you know, there's the wind and the, that salty air and the seagulls.
0: And you share that experience with others, and you'll have commentary, you'll have a psalm, you'll have a prayer. Sometimes it's very minimal words that you'll have, and you know what those words are. You'll say, inhale, exhale, Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's just something like a prayer, a very brief or something. And it seems like that's a part of the healing thing for you.
1: Yeah, it is. Whenever we're healing the nervous system, we don't just wanna notice the triggers because when we notice the triggers, we wanna draw boundaries around them. We wanna help the nervous system find safety if it's a neutral trigger. If it's a a trigger that's indicating threat, then we we wanna create the space and draw the boundaries. But we also want to bring awareness to what Deb Dana has coined glimmers And so if a trigger signals threat to the nervous system, a glimmer is gonna be something that signals joy, peace, or freedom or strength, or or any of those things that feel hard (laughs) to feel when we're stuck in survival mode, when we're in a stress state. And so a glimmer can be something really small and simple. Like for me, the feeling of my hot cup of tea in the morning um, that hot ceramic against my hands is very soothing and comforting, you know, snuggling with lily, um, but the beach is just rife with glimmers. <laughs> beauty is one of my most favorite glimmers, the way that beauty nourishes both the nervous system and the soul. And I post a lot of on my instagram and and Facebook, I want to give my community education, but I also want to share my glimmers with them to give them little breaks and their Instagram scrolling from stressful content, just be able to come in their bodies a little bit.
0: Yeah, that's very important for you. I can tell you, you do, you're very intentional. Sometimes you'll say, you'll do this game of, um, I forget what it's called. Would you you rather, Yeah. I was going to say either or, but that didn't make sense, but would you rather what's the would you rather is like a little game you play where would you rather sometimes i don't relate to it because i don't relate to like having tea and a jane austen novel (laughs) Um, but uh i can kind of separate substitute my own like would you rather go hunting in uh, the rocky mountains of colorado with your dad um, with a 300 winchester magnum on your shoulder as a 14 year old or would you rather go fishing in wyoming you know or so i don't know but i just substitute my own but
1: yeah mine i m- m- there are more women in my audience than men so i think it does default to some of those uh, although not to say that men wouldn't love a good jane austen novel good literature is good literature but yeah it's fun i haven't to-
0: tried it i have not tried oh. she's she's got to be good i mean look at she's famous i mean she had it was mainly men in the publishing world for so many years she had she survived because she's good she's very good obviously I, I just haven't had a chance to read it but.
1: she's funny you might like her actually I mean I don't know okay. your literature but she's funny she's, okay. yeah
0: are there any pictures in the in the novel because otherwise <laughs> I typically just throw I need pictures I'm just I'm kidding that was a dumb joke the the number of people that look at
1: degrees me to, <laughs> yeah, the, for me to the, take seriously the,
0: the, the look i get from some people when i say that I th- i've thrown most of my bibles away because they didn't have any pictures i have my precious moments though
1: but yeah, oh, I, have one of those. yeah
0: I, I have one my grandparents gave me in the 80s um sarah i i just totally I, i've enjoyed our conversation so much that i lost track of time oh that's okay good. Never, good. that never happens to me and um I loved the non-rush feeling of this. Um I love listening to you. I think you're so wise. Uh and I I, I guess it's just because I've known you for a while and I've I've seen your struggles and and I've I've related to it in my own story. Like, wow, this is this is a very human thing. Like I, I used to think of what you went through as um very sad for you. But then, as you started coming out of it, I was like, "Oh wow, this is triumphant! This is there's something else going on here. This is really cool. This is this has got appeal across the board for people. Like, and there's a lot of people apparently that have the same, very similar, uh, ways of relating to your story and and how you, um." how God helped you through that and helped you heal. Uh, it's really cool to see. It's really awesome. The glimmers that you share, you know, it's amazing how we all find the same nervous system response to like puppies yeah. or like little duck, you know, Nobody's triggered by puppies, you know, no one's triggered by the beach. Like, you know, you don't have to worry about this sunset and someone going, oh, no, that ah, that brings up. I'd rather look at concrete. I'd rather look at skyscrapers. No, I mean, it's it's there's a universal appeal in your story. And I love seeing you create a business out of it. I have high respect for anybody who starts their own business because it is no joke what's required to start your own business. And I love that you also couch it in spiritual formation, which I think is very important. And you don't shy away from that. You're not, you're not embarrassed about that at all.
1: Well, so. I, I so want people to find physical healing, to understand the role of the nervous system in chronic health conditions and how healing it can change things and, and chronic mental health conditions. But more than that, you know, one of the things I say, your body matters because you matter. And I, so I want, I want people to have that physical relief, but I yearn for them to find the deep soulful healing that I have experienced in the person of Jesus. And so I don't want to leave that part of my story out because that's the best part. (laughs) that's the best. And can a lot, just... of, oh, a lot of
0: times people lead with that and there's not really a connection I don't think. I mean some people but but I think you lead with um this this way we're designed mm-hmm. to respond to our situation and then it just gets locked in the body and you, you gotta release that stuff. You gotta, there's ways to do it. The spiritual formation stuff comes out as you're doing that. Yeah. Which I think is a really neat thing. I'm sorry I interrupted you.
1: <laughs> no, well, I think I might've started to interrupt you. <laughs> it's hard to know. Um yeah, I love that, that the spirit, any time we rewire, there are these invitations to deeper formation, to really understanding, learning to understand our belovedness, which really means just opening ourselves to the spirit of God who wants to teach us that. But there's a, yeah. there's a thread flapping in the wind. I'm thinking for okay. anyone listening who's saying, she gave us the first breath of grief and lament, but mm. not the second breath. I want to make sure I speak that um, you
0: sound like a thinker right now. Just FYI. That's <laughs> like a total thinker.
1: Yeah, I do. I do have a lot of thinker. Um,
0: there was a half of a sentence I left off about 47 minutes ago. Hold on. Let me give you the other half of that sentence.
1: Well, you know what it is. Did you know I studied philosophy? I,
0: I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Y-
1: you knew that. Yeah. So- I did. Yeah. There's a, there is a like a precision that I do appreciate, but also the teacher in me, like that. Shepherd I came in- to
0: speak at one of your philosophy uh, uh, classes, I think, maybe. Oh, yeah. I think that's where I first met you, actually, in person.
1: I think that you were speaking, I think you might have been speaking to undergrad, but I came to meet you. I can't remember. Okay. I, I
0: think it was Scott Ray's class. It was on the definition of marriage. I don't know if you were in that class or not, but
1: in where I, I, I first met. This class. Maybe it was Scott, right?
0: Okay. Well, anyway.
1: Well, anyways, so for yeah, those you, anyway. because I think lament is such a central, important practice for both rewiring the brain and for soul formation. So this first breath of complaint, um, this is where we not only lay our our wounds before God, but our need. And then the second breath is trust. And trust is where we remember God's goodness to us. In our story, we reorient to those, to the evidence of his goodness throughout our story. And of course, in Christian culture, we often like to just jump straight to the trust you know, with our platitudes, but God is good and God's going to see you through this. And those things are true. Um, but then there's this emotional, spiritual congestion where it's like, we're continuing to hold up our fig leaves to cover up the anger and cover up the doubt. And so letting yourself really expose your wounds and, and trust, I think a helpful way of thinking about trust. I think it can sometimes elicit for some people, a sense of, I need to strive to conjure this thing that I don't have, but trust is really about rest, And so it's about learning to rest in a goodness that holds you as you are processing your pain with Jesus. Hmm. And that is so important. I don't want to leave that.
0: (laughs) Oh no. I'm so glad you came back to that. That is really good. Especially when you said people lead with trust sometimes Mm -hmm. and there's Bible verses that say trust in the Lord and all that stuff. it's like, well, how do you, you know force yourself to you feel like that can lead to shame too if you're not able to do That's- that and the 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 lament you're saying the complaint comes first mm-hmm. then does trust come naturally or is it does it take some effort
1: I think it's both I think the beauty of when we lay our complaint and I don't mean a self-indulgent whining though, because I think some Christians say, we don't want to encourage self-indulgent whining. Sometimes our complaint sounds like self-indulgent whining. And we still say, listen, this is what's in my heart right now, God. So I'm going to give it to you because you're the only one who can change me. And I want to open myself to your healing power. Um,
0: That's very vulnerable.
1: It's very, very vulnerable. That's
0: very vulnerable.
1: And and what happens when we expose the contents of our heart, however self-indulgent they may sound or however, you know, aggressive or rageful or whatever they are before him, that's when we give him a chance to show us that he's trustworthy. When we expose ourself in vulnerability with anyone, we are giving them an opportunity to cultivate trust. It's the only way trust is built. And so skipping to trust really can be so counterproductive because we skip over this really pivotal piece of allowing God to show us how trustworthy he is. He's going to draw toward us in love and where we need to be instructed and guided. He's going to do that with gentleness and love and where we need to be validated and held. He's going to do that. And so that's really
0: huge right there. It's what you huge. just said.
1: And it doesn't mean that we don't practice trust. Trust is a spiritual discipline. Trust can look like sitting down and remembering the ways that God has been faithful to me throughout my story. It's a way of becoming, it's re-familiarizing myself with my story so I can rest in the present goodness of God now. He's been present in the past. You know what it is? It's, I think a good picture of this practice of trust is in Exodus when the Israelites cross the Red Sea, they get to the other side and Miriam leads them in song. And the first two thirds of the song, they're looking back at the good things God has done. And the last third or so, they're looking forward to the good things he will do. And it's that looking back that allows them, it stabilizes their hope. Their hope rests on the looking back and that that stabilizes their present. Mm-hmm. There can be that.
0: sometimes you have to do that on purpose too like uh he says okay like in joshua 4 make the stones a memorial for what god has done for you and that implies to me that sometimes there's things you can do uh that's why i like archiving i was telling you before we were recording that one of my phd uh research tools was archival mess uh research methods What I like about that is it's on purpose where we are creating a record. We don't necessarily know the significance of these little things like a receipt, for example, or, or a diary. Those are very important to historians trying to make sense of the past, but Joshua four is they use stones like an archivist so that these would be symbolic of what God has done looking back.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it really is opening to giving him a chance to show you his trustworthiness and then engaging our imaginations in ways that are restful and stabilizing and re- by reorienting us to the goodness of God um, in our lives when it's hard to see it and feel it and sense it.
0: So you have an Instagram account where you're uh, you're at Sarah Jackson Coaching,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and we I'll link that uh, in the description. Uh, is there anything else you'd like me to link? Would you like me to link your website?
1: Oh, if anyone's interested in Restore, Restore's opening or... again in July. It opens just four times a year. They could always find it at my website sarahjacksoncoaching.com
0: okay and i'll link that um is there uh is there a way for that for people do you are you inviting well if someone wants to ask you a question Mm
1: -hmm.
0: is there a way that they can contact you or would you say Instagram or would you say email or would you say not at this time or?
1: Yeah, I'm not able to answer coaching related healing related questions, because I just get too many. So that's where the membership is a nice option, because I, there's a section in the forum where you can drop questions and I can do Q and A videos, but on Instagram, sometimes I'll do Q and A's and, and also people often have questions, um, that if they go to my Instagram or my YouTube, they'll see their, those questions are answered and and so the posts, the videos, the
0: highlights, so. Okay. Um, it's been a true joy to have the now famous <laughs> Sarah Jackson coaching on the podcast to talk about the nervous system and holistic health. And this has a lot to do with, you know, a lot of the stuff that people are experiencing. There's lots of stress with the economy with, um, you know, just normal life even, and there's lots of cool things that you can do to release that stored energy. And also it's nice to know what trauma is. Yeah. (laughs) That's a really insightful thing your, your definition of trauma is so good. I think it's the best I've ever seen. Definition of trauma, uh, stored energy. Can you define it again? One more time.
1: Yeah, it's the accumulation of survival energy in the body over a lifetime. And so that survival energy normally in a healthy situation, an ideal situation, that that energy is important. It's supposed to help you in a stressful state. But when that stressful event has passed, your nervous system would discharge the energy. And as it's discharging the energy, it's moving back up the ladder because the healthy nervous system is going to move up and down the ladder. Oh, okay. It's not going to be at the top forever. We need to move up and down the ladder. We live in a broken world with stressful stuff, but it's just not going to get stuck lower on mm. the ladder. and so, so if you're in a
0: car accident, for example, it'd be really weird if you were in rest and digest like throughout the whole car accident. Right. And you were like and you walk away and you're like, that was just a really relaxing time of that car accident. <laughs>
1: Right. your are going to, it's going to generate survival energy to help you get out. Or if there's too much energy in your, in your, it, it, it might go into shutdown. Shutdown is an analgesic shutdown makes it. So you're not going to feel as much. And so in a painful situation, that might also be your body's where your body ends up.
0: So you don't have to go to Vietnam to have trauma. You don't you can just have regular that. That was a key insight that you shared. I can't remember where I'd,
1: but mm-hmm.
0: you'd share it over and over again. So if you follow her, Sarah Jackson Coaching at Instagram, at, at Sarah Jackson Coaching on Instagram, you'll, you'll, um, you'll see that you pepper that in like mm-hmm. ordinary things for different people experience things differently. We're all built differently. We have different Myers Briggs, different Enneagram. Um, And so one person might experience like a car accident, for example, very differently than somebody else. Somebody else might have a really hard time getting on the highway for a long time after a car accident. And then the other person is just like, well, that happens. And then, you know, someone else experiences whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just Vietnam
1: well, nuclear war. It's not mental weakness either that results in traumatization. It really is how your involuntary system or your system that's working involuntarily experiences it. And yeah, it can be things like even stress in utero and what your mom's going through. I mean, it, it really can start in the womb.
0: I just remembered you didn't do the slinky yet.
1: Oh, I didn't do the slinky. I was going to, yes, we've, we've wandered many directions and covered so much territory. The slinky got left behind. Um, so for those who are watching, and if you're not watching, you can just imagine I have this little rainbow colored slinky, like the ones you get at a carnival and it's kind of doing some wonky things right now. I'm trying to straighten it out, but it, when you get out of bed, your body is going to generate energy to, Enable you to get out of bed and make your scrambled eggs and brew your coffee or whatever your morning routine looks like. And so, if you're listening, you can just imagine. I'm just moving the slinky in small doses. It's kind of hard to describe. Oops, I'm walking. It's kind of hard to describe what's happening here with the slinky. It's, it's, collapsed. It's, it's collapsed. It's collapsed.
0: You're holding it vertically. It's, it's collapsed. collapsed. And what you're doing is, what she's doing is, she's holding the top a few rungs of it, and she's um, raising it like maybe a half inch or two inches, maybe. Yes.
1: Oh, that was a much better description. And so I'm just lifting it here and there. Now in a fight or flight state, your body's generating all that survival energy. And so now I've got this linky and I'm lifting it maybe two feet in the air. There's all and this. And then
0: she's letting it collapse and then she's yeah. Yeah, so
1: Yeah. So it's going up and down. And you may even be able to hear it. There's all this energy zinging through. And ideally, when the stressor has passed, your body is going to discharge that energy. And so now that my slinky is coming closer back to the baseline here, you're better at describing the slinky, Lucas. How would you describe this?
0: Uh, you're going back to you're, you're raising it just a maybe a couple inches and letting it collapse.
1: Yeah so now we're back at our baseline because we've discharged all that energy yeah. But in okay. trauma. What happens is the energy's zinging through. So I'm back to lifting it up and down two or three feet in the or one or two feet in the air. Mm-hmm. And so when the brain perceives we're helpless, we're stuck, we're lacking control, mm. that's when energy gets locked in the system. And now I've slammed the slinky shut.
0: Yeah. And then that can come out in all sorts of ways. Like, um, irritable bowel syndrome, pain in your feet like I had, uh, different people Mm experience.
1: What's that? Autoimmunity.
0: Yeah, and so your whole deal is figuring out how to release that in natural ways. There's little things you can do, techniques. Mm -hmm. There's also mindset issues. There's also beliefs about yourself. And and you've, you've somehow figured this out over a long time. And it's a long, it's a journey that you're on too.
1: Yeah. There's cool. There's always invitation to really,
0: I'm really glad to know you. I'm honored to know you. you. I, I have a lot of respect for, for what you've gone through and just a lot of respect for you. And I, you're one of the wisest people I know on, on self care. And, um, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast to share your wisdom with us.
1: Well, I'm glad to know you, Lucas. And it was a delight to be able to sit and talk with you face to face today. Yeah. Me.
0: Yeah, you're welcome.